Hello, welcome to European UFOs and a happy new year to all of you. You've all been really supportive last year and I'm really looking forward to an exciting 2024. We will kick off the new year with a closer look at one of the core issues surrounding what we call ufology, namely the question, what constitutes evidence? For the most part, our understanding of UFOs comes in the form of narratives such as Mr. and Mrs. X were driving down a deserted country road when they saw strange lights in the sky and had an episode of missing time. Usually, such eyewitness accounts, if they can't be falsified right off the bat, are considered evidence for the reality of non-human intelligences traversing our skies and abducting us at will. But this isn't without problems. The validity of eyewitness testimony has a long history of research within psychology and results are pretty unambiguous. What people think they saw often isn't what they saw. Notably, there's a strong resistance among some ufologists to accept this, but the case of peer-reviewed research is pretty unambiguous on the reliability of eyewitness accounts, not only when it comes to UFOs, but also crimes, etc. So, what do we study when we study UFOs? Here with me to discuss this question is Dr. Jean-Michel Abrassat, a psychologist, a UFO researcher, espousing the so-called psychosocial model. According to this, much, if not all, eyewitness testimony on UFOs is reducible to mundane explanations, unexplicable within our current scientific paradigm. We explore a few case studies, such as the Belgian UFO wave of the late 1980s and early 1990s, to illustrate this problem. Finally, Dr. Apassar and I disagree, albeit amicably, on how and to what degree other categories of UFO evidence, such as official government documents, might really point to something very strange going on in our skies. So stay tuned and let me know what you think about the nature of UFO evidence. Hello, Dr. Apassar. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. It's very kind of you to join me on what is, at least in Berlin, a very gloomy Saturday morning. I hope wherever you are is more sunny and already heading towards spring. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in Belgium, so it's not much better. <laughs> wow. It's kind of the same. Well, fair enough. But we've got some very interesting thoughts, um, topics to um, uh, talk about today. So hopefully... Um, they will bring us into uh, better, better, at least mental conditions. So um, I will start my um, episodes by asking my guests this, and I think it's always a really relevant question. Um, what is your background and what subjects are you, you particularly trained academically? And above all, what got you hooked onto the UFO phenomenon? Yeah, so my main area is psychology so i have a phd in psychology and i did my phd on the on the ufo topic which is quite rare i suppose but yeah that's my my topic on the psychology of ufo believe and witness kind of a mix of both um and also i have a master's degree in uh, philosophy so i'm also have some training in philosophy. Of course, I'm very interested in epistemology and subjects like that that are related to, to this topic. And how did you get interested as a um, 
philosophy graduate and then a PhD in psychology in the UFO phenomenon. Was there a particular aspect of this? Like, I, I, I think especially in um, animalistic psychology, abductions are a big topic. So was it through that angle that you came into this field or how did that emerge? No, I actually, so as I said before, I'm Belgian. And um, of course, I suppose most of your listeners will know that there was a huge wave in Belgium in 1992. And I was a teenager at the time, around 14, 14, 15. Now, I didn't see anything in, in the sky, even though I was in, in the right area for that. Um, but I was fascinated at the time by uh, the way the media covered the topic. It sounded kind of uncritical for me, the way they approached it. Um, but there's lots to say about how media covers UFOs anyway, in general. But, but then that sparkled my interest. So I'm sure we're going to talk more about it. But of course, at the time, there was an organization called Subaps who studied the UFO wave, um, who was... Uh, the suburbs tended to be more and more skeptical before the UFO wave, but when the UFO started, uh, they reverted to more uh, in favor of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, uh, especially the main... Um, uh, well, of course, it was a small group of people, but I mean, the main voice, if you want, was a physicist called August Mason, um, was very, very convinced of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So he, he was very active during that wave in the media to talk about it and stuff. <laughs> but I was exposed to the UFO phenomena through that, um, to the, through that time. And when I went into uh, psychology and philosophy, at some point, of course, I had to choose a subject for my, my first, for, for the end of my master, for my short, short thesis. And I, I was starting to get interested in the skeptical movement and um, how they approach the UFO phenomena. So I decided to work on that. Uh, I wanted to to work. I mean, that time was a different time. It was like what the nineties, <laughs> beginning of the nineties. So there was no there was the beginning of internet, but <laughs> internet was not what it is today. So it was very, very hard to find skeptical information at the time about the UFO phenomena. So, um, yeah, I wanted to, to, to go to try to see what I could find on, on the subject and, and go deeper that way. So that's, that's how my, I started with my short thesis at the end of my master that I already did about the same topic, like, uh, the psychosocial model, if you want of the UFO phenomena. And then after that, I, I moved on to, um, I did some research in the laboratory of psychology of religion, but I studied the psychology of paranormal belief. And then I did my PhD. That's how it went. Excellent. So it's basically the kind of mass media, I suppose you could almost call it um, hysteria of the late 80s, early 90s in um, associated with the Belgium UFO wave that, that got you hooked. I think I also remember it, um, the um, Belgian UFO wave. And um, I think it's one of those, um, for many ufologists, seminal cases in um, 
in Europe um, that we're going to touch on later. But perhaps from the outset, could you um, perhaps describe or elaborate on what you mean by skepticism? Because I'm sure, as you well know, many, many of my listeners um, are probably wholeheartedly convinced that there is some ontological, i.e. objective truth to the UFO phenomenon. And I think the experience they've probably made is, you know, if you talk to your wife or your husband about UFOs and they're not particularly um, convinced by it, they are already confronted with a rather skeptical position. So um, so a lot of people would probably argue that the um, standard um, point of view in our society is one of skepticism towards paranormal and um, UFO phenomena. So could you perhaps elaborate on what you mean by skepticism? Yeah, I think the, easy, the, the, the easiest way would be just to explain a little bit what I think the psychosocial model is, because I think the skeptical position, so there is a movement called the skeptical movement, and I think the skeptical movement the position of most of his member, most of his mem- of his members don't care about UFOs, but those those who do, <laughs> they they tend to espouse the psychosocial model. So that's the way I call it. Uh, usually in English, it's on Wikipedia they use psychosocial hypothesis, but I didn't like the word hypothesis, so I changed to model. I don't think hypothesis is is the right word for that, because I think we have enough. A proof or data to to show that it's not a hypothesis but a model, a way to explain it. But anyway, the the, the way to call that model is is subject at debate. Anyway, it's, there's no very good term in in so in France in Belgium. Um, there was discussion about how to call it anyway. But um, some some uh, other French writer called uh, Claude Moget called it the reductionist composite model. So. It's a reductionist because you reduce the phenomena to prosaic stimuli, and it's a composite because we reject the idea that this is one explanation for the UFO phenomena. There's a plethora of there's many stimuli that can generate a UFO observation. Uh, so he chose that word. Well, I, I decided to go with psychosocial model because it's more aligned to what it's already used in the Anglo-Saxon world. world. But yeah, in France, some people think that. Reductionist composite model is better well, anyway. <laughs> so that that model, I mean, it's a way to look at the UFO phenomena, and I think the that is different from the way <laughs> UFO believers, let's use that term, or UFO proponents uh, look at the UFO phenomena. So I think we're almost in front of two paradigm, right? Two different paradigm. So it's a paradigm, if you want. So that's why I use the word model instead of hypothesis. It's a way to look at the phenomena. And for me, the the way I I, I like to explain it, I, I wrote a book for children in French, where where I explained that for primary school students. It's 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 very easy to understand. I say the UFO phenomena is like a stack of hay, and some people think there is a needle in it. Uh, I'm not convinced there is a needle in it, but we're not sure. <laughs> maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But for as a skeptic, for me, uh, the psychosocial model, we don't really care about the needle. We care about the state of high, 
the 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 hey i mean sorry i'm, I'm not uh, english is not my native language so but we care about the hey so and we are interested to explain why why so many people think they saw ufo when we're sure they, they, they didn't actually. So we know for sure that most of the, the sightings are not alien spacecraft. We, we, we know in France, there is a, a French organization studying officially the UFO for the government from the equivalent of NASA. And they have a very good database. Um, I, I haven't looked in a few months, but last time I looked, I think the truly unexplained case so that means kids that we really don't know how to explain so far that have good data. So it's not, we, we are not, not able to explain them because we don't have the data. We have good data and they're really strange. It's like something like 3% okay, of the database. So I'm like, as a skeptic, the, the, the stack of hay is the 97%. <laughs> Why? Why so many people think they saw something anomalous when actually we, we know we know they didn't? So that that's I, I would say that's for me that's a way to explain what the skeptical approach of the phenomena. I, I think that that aspect. Why why so many people think they saw something when we know they didn't? They saw something anomalous when we know they didn't. It's fascinating as a psychologist. Or as, a, as a, someone working in the human sciences, and there's really something to study, and and there uh, beyond the is there a needle? Uh, and, and 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 to re- to reply to your first question, why did I do my PhD on that? Is like I'm um, I'm 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 some somehow frustrated by so many people who study UFO phenomena by s- focusing so much on the quest for the needle. <laughs> I'm like. The, the the rest is so fascinating. Why why are you so? I, I know I don't. It's I, I, in a way, of course, I know why because they're hoping there's something truly anomalous. But it's it's kind of in a way, I have some kind of frustration. I'm like the UFO phenomena as a social phenomena is really truly fascinating. So why not study that, right? Also, also. Yeah, absolutely. Um, th- thanks for um explaining this. So. The um, psychosocial model, um, which, to be honest, before preparing for this podcast, I wasn't really um, familiar with. I think I've heard of it before, but never really had the chance to explore it a bit more deeply. So could you perhaps take us through um, its different components? Because from what I understood, it's a layered model. So there are different explanatory layers that can either... Uh, kind of be used distinctly or um, in conjunction with one another to account for phenomena. So could you just basically on a high level take us through these different layers? So one one of the reasons people object to uh, skeptics uh, or people in my my way of looking at the phenomenon don't like the word psychosocial model is because it makes people think that it's purely sociological and psychological when obviously most of the time there is a physical stimuli in the sky so that's why that vocabulary is sometimes rejected but of course most there is something in the sky and just for me when i chose to went for that word i'm like okay we we know there's something in the sky but the phenomena is mostly in the head of the people and more than what's really in the sky so 
there are the models in a way state that there are se several things that can explain an observation from a psychological and sociological point of view. But the first is what we call simple mistake. And that's the vast majority of people. The vast, the, the simple mistakes are people see something in the sky and they just don't recognize what it is. So that means that they will describe the object quite accurately, just they've completely failed to identify what it is. And so we call that simple mistake because there, there will be complex mistakes later on. But the vast, really vast majority of the cases are that. So we can observe that when we, we do field studies. So I'm part of a group doing investigation. In, it's called the CNEGU. So it's the committee for, I'm translating from French, but from the study of UFO case in the northeast of France, if you want. And that group, uh, we, we study observations uh, in, our, in, our, in, our, in, in that area. And we can observe that most people they they can describe exactly what they saw and it's really precise what they say just just they're wrong about being anomalous um and then the most probably interesting part for me is that there are complex case uh, uh, mistakes and the complex mistakes is that uh, for those there starts to be distortion in what uh, the report is and so um, at the end of the processes, the story we get in UFO books, if you want, is not does not the description of the object does not reflect what the object really looked like. Um, uh, there are some extreme cases, but uh, in 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 the French UFO wave in the 1950s, uh, well, it's not a well documented case, but I like I like to use it as an example. It was published in a in a newspaper, but someone uh, saw a UFO land, landing landed near his house, and he took a gun and started shooting at it, and it was actually his neighbor changing the battery. So, well, of his car. Makes for, makes for a good neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's an, I mean, it's, it's, it's just interesting because it seems so absurd, but we, we, we know it happens because we, we, um, I, we, we, in cryptozoology, we have also lots of cases like that. For example, people who said we saw Bigfoot and we saw clearly Bigfoot. It was Bigfoot. Then they bring back some air and we do some DNA analysis and it was a bear or deer. So it's, it's clear that they saw something and. In their mind, it was Bigfoot, but actually, and if it's a deer DNA, a deer doesn't look like a Bigfoot. Like we, we start to be really in the realm of very big mistakes in perception. So we, we know scientifically those happens, um, even though I think in the population, usually people think that what we see is accurate or it's difficult to to think that we can be that mistaken. But then, so we have that process from, from what the witness, when the witness sees something to when it's published in a book. So the distortion or the change can happen when he perceives the stimuli. There can be some illusions. Classic one would be uh, he's in his car and he sees the UFO chasing him. And actually it's the moon. So we all know there's a illusion of movement with the moon. Other distortion can happen, of course, because of 
the culture. We know what a UFO from UFO documentaries or science fiction movie, we know what it's supposed to look like. And then those, those people will change what they see um, based because of their condition, if you want. Then, of course, there's when the, um, they will start remembering it. Each time they remember, they will start changing the description of what they saw. The cl- in sociology, the classical example is someone is fishing and then uh, I, I got a fish that big and it shows like 10 centimeters and the following week it's that big and that big and that big and the, the fish gets b- bigger and bigger. Then, of course, after that, there is when he's going to retell to the journalist or ufologist or whatever he's talking to, when he explains it, it's going to change. And the questions the ufologist or the journalist will ask will influence what he says. We Lots of studies in psychology have shown that if you ask leading questions, you will change. The details will change. And then after that, of course, the ufologist will or the journalist will publish in a journal or a book. And then when he explains, it's going to change again. And then you can have like the addition of all these elements at the end of the day when what the version you have in print is extremely different from the version you can, could can be extremely different from the version you had at the beginning from the real object itself. So as I said, I'm not saying that's the all the UFO case. I'm say, saying it's a minority of UFO case. Most people describe accurately what they see, and we can easily rec- uh, find the object uh, they actually saw in the sky. And after that, in the in the model, there are other. There are the false memories. No, some some people we know in psychology that some people actually have completely false memories. That's something that can be important for the alien abduction phenomena. And then it's a kind of a, a taboo subject in ufology, but there's also hallucinations. I wrote a paper about that. It's always the I mean, it's something people don't want. Don't ah, saying that it's not nice for the witness or whatever, but. People do have hallucination in the real world. That happens. It's not something such uncommon. So some cases, very a minority, a very few, but some cases should be explained by hallucination. The fact that it never comes up is almost suspicious for me. <laughs> anyway, because of course uh, schizophrenia or some there are some psychiatric trouble that will lend to um, Paranormal beliefs. Uh, actually, I, I met. Uh, I, I was investigating a case a few like fifteen years ago. Uh, I went to see the witness, and he was under medication from a psychiatrist. And uh, his testimony was he was seeing ball of lights in his room, floating above his beds once a week. Um, and for him, it was clearly alien communications. Okay, for me, it was uh, hallucination. So, but those cases don't tend to be published in the literature because of the obsession of we are looking for the needle and that's clearly not the needle. For, when for me, that's part of the phenomena too, right? So should we, we lack information about those cases. He was completely convinced that it was alien communication and was on forums and websites to write about his contacts with alien. So... Here you go. That's the the summary. And then there are, oh, yeah. yeah. And then after that, yeah, the, the hoaxes, the question of hoaxes. That that's on the last aspect, I guess. Yeah. Th- thanks. Thanks a lot for this overview. Um, I think so. W- with this case study, you just mentioned someone having a, um, a psychological pathology. Um, I think 
probably a lot of UFO researchers aren't trained to even recognize that. So it's very essential to actually have people also with a uh, psychological background um, studying this phenomenon. And it's also it's always a problem I have with the um, alien abduction phenomenon and, um, you know, going through regression and um, hypnotherapy because they're exactly, and I think it has been exposed quite quite well by many researchers there are leaders there's the issue of leading questions and you know yeah. starting with betty and barney hill to um you know more recent cases i think it is a very difficult subject to really engage with objectively unless you have a firm backing in psychology but um but anyways i wanted to ask you about the um hallucination issue here um so for me i don't have a background in psychology but for me hallucinations are um intrinsically associated with individuals so it seems to be an individual phenomenon whereas the ufo phenomenon per se is more of a collective uh phenomenon so how do you reconcile these two dimensions yeah it's a good question i of course, if you have hallucinations, uh, it, you should be by yourself. I mean, it's in 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 that's why the golden standard. If you're looking for the needle, should be you should at least have a few witnesses seeing the same thing independently, <laughs> not 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 talking to each other because if they talk to each other, they will influence each other. So ideally, you should have a few witnesses that come testify without having information crossed between them, uh, the, the golden standard. But now, in, in the literature, there is talk of what we call folie à deux. In, it's in French, but it's in English too. <laughs> they use the French for folie à deux, so that means madness for two people, of people living together. Uh, so it's like a psychotic or sky, people having really deep mental problems, talking to each other and influencing their worldview. Uh, so in that case, you could have, you could have, it's considered that they could have hallucinations, the same style of hallucination almost together. I'm not completely convinced, but in the literature, it, 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 it exists. Now, the UFO phenomena is, 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 is of course sociological influenced by American culture at the beginning and so on. But yeah, but of course, people who have mental illness, they like us see what's available in the culture through movies and documentaries and so on. And what they will experience will be deeply influenced by their culture. So it's no wonder that uh, some of them will either see something that is completely based on UFO folklore or will interpret what they experience as UFO folklore, uh, if, if that's what you... I'm not sure if I answer your questions. <laughs> um, yeah, it's more like a terminological question, I suppose. Um, so just to give you a concrete example, um, 1997, the Phoenix Lights in Arizona, um, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people saw a huge football-sized uh, triangle UFO in the night sky. Would this, in according to your model, be a um, fully a deux 
type of phenomenon or more kind of an illusion that's um, kind of over, overshadowed by cultural um, um, baggage and the media. Yeah, but- Yes, you, you have to see case by case. Uh, of course, if you have many witnesses, uh, in, it's a way to rule the pure hallucination. As I said, I think you cannot have a pure hallucination with many witnesses. But it's 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 kind of yeah, it's it's a fascinating question. It's uh, like uh, there was some cults, for example, where uh, in France there was a very dangerous cult, and we know the leader would show. Uh, what was described by the member of the cult as a sword of flame, but when the cops arrested him, it was a neon tube. So <laughs> you see that a group could <laughs> could uh, could perceive something really wrong. So you see, in some circumstances, it could be possible. But yeah, if if there's lots of independent witnesses who are not connected to each other, no, of course not. They they would have to be uh, uh, some at least a physical stimuli. I think in the Fatima, the, the dance of the sun is the classical example for that. There's lots of witness, but most skeptics consider that explained by um, they looked at the sun for a long time, and then looking at the sun for to, for a long time is a terrible idea for your eye. And uh, that based with uh, what they were expecting and what the church told them uh, they should see, uh, they they had that uh, impression of the, the sun dancing. So we are back to the idea that there's an objective stimuli, in that case the sun, mixed with the, the sociological situation where they are in. But I wouldn't explain that with an hallucination, of course. Um, so the psychosocial model is by, it has a very um, significant impact on how we treat one, if not the main data source in um, ufology, namely eyewitness accounts. So um, I was just going to pick your brains on how do you make sense of the narrative, because I think it's becoming increasingly popular uh, amongst ufologists, um, always this phrase, um, well, the UFO was seen by trained staff by you know highly credible people is that um is that somehow to be reconciled with your model or does is your model does does the psych psychosocial model predict that basically there uh, is a propensity within human psychology to um, misidentify and misinterpret phenomena and that even if we think people are credible they may not necessarily be credible or objective observers because the implications for this, if eyewitness accounts are, let's say, 95% of all the data set we have are quite significant. Yeah, for me, a credible and uh, it depends what you mean by credible. I, I never imply that the witness is lying or trying to of course this maybe there's some case some people do but that's not i think as a skeptic of or the in the psychosocial model when we approach a case we never start with the idea oh, that the witness is disingenuous is trying to lie to us that's never the first thing we think i mean the case of hoaxery are happens but obviously but Especially if you, if someone says I saw something and he wants some people to come and do an investigation, I mean, the most likelihood is he's not 
it's not going to try to deceive us. But for me, there are no, it's every, as you're right, that phrase doesn't, it's, it's kind of annoying for me. <laughs> it, for me, there's no expert. There's no credible expert people who could recognize spaceships in the sky. That doesn't exist. It's like a, a myth. Uh, it's a narrative that the UFO community used to justify an argument from authority that I think doesn't hold up. We we know that pilots make mistakes. That has been documented. Uh, there are cases we were sure the pilots saw something mundane and they thought it was alien. So we, we know it happens. A phrase I often use when I want to explain that to children is uh, uh, Japanese sayings, uh, even monkeys fall from trees. <laughs> so that means that everyone, an expert in climbing a tree can fall. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a way to say there's lots of pilots in the world. And yeah, there are different things that, of course, pilots can make mistakes. There's lots of pilots in the world and we have the psychology is like a goes curve in statistics, you know, and in, in that curve, but at the, at the two extreme, you have people who will see stuff and in the middle, they, they won't. Um, that's another way of looking at things. Um, what else? And uh, yeah, the training, they're trained. No, they're not trained. I mean, they train to pilot planes, but n since we don't know, what a true alien spaceship looks like, by definition, nobody can be trained to identify alien spaceship. <laughs> it, it's, 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 nobody can train for that. On top of that, in the sky, they're trained to recognize other planes, sure, obviously. But in the, in, in the sky, you don't have background elements to help you perceive the size of the spaceship. So you don't know if the object is close to you or far from you, and the speed is the same. You don't know. Because you don't know the size, you don't know the speed. You cannot guess the speed either accurately. The, they can when it's a plane because they know the type of plane, and then they know the size because they have seen the object on the ground. Like, uh, yeah, yeah if, if, if I see, let's say, let's say there's a car flying in the sky, I know the size of a car. So I have a reference. But by definition, when they're looking to at uh, anomalous object, they cannot know <laughs> what they're looking at. So they don't have the size, so they don't have the speed. So it's not that, it, it's just nobody can be trained to, to identify objects that they don't know what it is on the background of the sky. It's not possible. Um, yeah, that's what I would say about that. Yes, I think it definitely adds another layer of complexity if you're supposed to identify something that you don't actually know what it is. Um, it definitely, that that is the case. And I also suppose that, again, I don't have a background in psychology, but that the um, psychological literature is replete with um, publications on um, misidentifications of mundane objects. Um, I just remember seeing documentaries on, on telly about, you know, how people would misidentify even um, the, you know, most everyday objects under certain conditions. So we probably from, I don't know if you could confirm this or comment on this, but I think that human psychology in general and our ability to perceive reality isn't the best if you compare to us as a species on this planet. 
Yeah, no. but uh, yeah, as I like psychologists like to say, we don't see with our eyes; we see with our brains, <laughs> and the brain makes mistakes, right? Because we construct, we we construct what we see. We we have pre preconceived notion of what we're gonna see, and then build on that, uh, we change what we actually see, and. When what we're seeing in something that we don't know what it is flying in the background of the sky, it becomes really tricky. But you don't even have to go into the psychological literature to see that. Just think about the hunting season in your country. I'm sure every single hunting season, there are stories of hunters who have shot at people running and they said, I saw it was a deer and I shot a guy. He was just jogging with a sweatshirt <laughs> and you're like... How could you mistake someone jogging, you see? And usually when there are those articles coming up, people say, yeah, but he must have drunk a lot, you know? He was, yeah, but, yeah, you know, UFO witness, what do they, that, what do journalists say about them? They, they, they must have been drunk a lot, right? So actually it's the same kind of thing that shows that we can, we can f- Forget that story about being drink. But after that, lots of people drink all the time. So I'm always like, it would be strange if UFO witness never saw a UFO with having drink alcohol just before. But (laughs) it's just, we don't need that explanation. It's like, um, and then, but um, we can see from those that people make terrible mistakes for hunting mistakes. It's terrible because... uh, of course, they start shooting a human being, thinking there are other things that humans. And everybody can see that during the hunting season. In France, uh, every week there's a new article on that style. And it just shows how human testimonies are fireable. I mean, it's not testimonies here, it's human perception is fireable. Because they have that preconceived notion, I'm going to see a deer, and then their brain change what they see. And of course... The stimuli is ambiguous because it's the forest. It may be a little bit dark and so on. But it's the same thing from from UFO. People tend to see UFO at night when there's no this possible to have a kiss in daylight. But usually, most people, it's going to be night. The condition of observation, maybe they're coming back from work. They're tired, so they're not. There are lots of factors that will interfere with their perception. Gosh, what a depressing death. You just go for a walk in the forest, minding your own business. <laughs> and you get, you get mistaken for a deer. Not very nice. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense that um, our um, perhaps limited um, sensorial apparatus in conjunction with a vivid imagination does lead to a lot of um, misinterpretations. I think um, that, that is also... Um, a trope in uh, in ufology, but one that's worth repeating because, as you said, um, we actually need to look at the haystack. And if there is something anomalous in that, fair enough. But the bulk of the data is um, is uh, the uh, eyewitness testimonials that um, are often of, um, let's say, dubious uh, quality. Yeah. Maybe we should say something about memory because mm. the issue, mm-hmm. I, as I said, it's not only perception, but it's also memory is, a, is an issue. And Elizabeth Loftus, you can look at her work. She did some amazing experiments about that. Uh, for example, she would show a videotape of a, a car crash, and then she will have her PhD student ask questions to the witness. 
who just saw the crash on TV and she will just change the wording of the phrase, like did the, um, and, uh, did the crash hard on the car or just hit the car or just bump the car. <laughs> they will manipulate the, the phrasing and just with the manipulation of the phrasing, what the witness will report will change. So it's, uh, it's, it's mind blowing. But of course that have lots of implication for police work. Uh, often when I interact with UFO proponents, they, they would say, yeah, but in law, in law, uh, the witness can decide if someone goes to the death row, for example. <laughs> That's an, an argument I hear sometimes. If in your country, a witness is enough to send you to a death row, you have a big issue. I <laughs> think you're, 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 you're in country with really problematic, <laughs> which is really problematic. But, but I think most it's not true. First, of course, first answer, law and science are two different subjects. So you shouldn't compare like the passing judgment and the, the law system is not a scientific system. So that's first, first counter to that. And the second one, for real, most, I hope <laughs> that in most countries, most judges and advocates and lawyers know that witness only shouldn't send you to this row and you should have at least a, a, a few physical tangible evidence against you on top of witness and, and not only witness because all those research in psychology they, they are pretty definite on the question that you shouldn't uh, uh, witnesses are not enough to convince convict someone but after that of course one of the issues is that in this row we know some people have been convicted based on witness and then for example, for raping, and then decades later, the, when DNA analysis was available, suddenly they were, uh, and uh, they were released. So we know those kinds of mistakes have been made based on witness testimonies, and it's tragic. It's not something that should be praised. No, absolutely. And as you said, we're dealing with two kind of different um, frameworks. So uh, the uh, judicial system is one that is based on a moral and um, if not ethical code whereas science as Lisa we define it these days and um in western and in the western world is one of um studying the uh objective reality of how the world works so um yeah so i'm also completely with you there that um you know just saying that um we should so if 95% of the data we have on UFOs come from eyewitnesses, then just saying that, okay, in court, they would be accepted really skirts the issue because, um, or rather, we have to think about how we want to think about studying the phenomena. Do we want to approach it from an ethical, preconceived uh, point of view, or do we want to study it objectively and scientifically? And then these two systems don't really go too well together. Um, speaking of um, ethical concerns and so on, um, I just to give you um, a, bit, a bit, bit of a background here. So, since I've started this podcast, I, no month passes actually where I don't get at least um, two to five emails um, from people who are quite disconcerted because they've um, been in touch with. Um, anomalies, uh, they've had weird encounters in their uh, bedroom, i.e. abductions. And um, I 
because I'm not trained in psychology and I also don't really know what to make of the phenomenon in general. I've made up my mind yet, which is probably a good thing. I find it very hard to advise these people because at least in Germany, where I'm currently based, there is no institute or no official authority where I could direct these people to. So I ob obviously I could tell them, okay, you know, you might need psychological help, but that will... Um, the way it's currently phrased in ufology probably um, mm. be misinterpreted. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on this, because for these people, these two to five people that email me each month, it's a real visceral experience and a real problem because they have no one to turn to. Yeah, so, so there's a field in psychology that's called uh, anomalistic psychology. So it's the study of anomalous phenomena. And one can argue that the UFO phenomena is part of it. For real, if you look at the textbooks about anomalistic psychology that has been published, have been published by the APA, for example, the American Psychological Association, which is the biggest association of American science, uh, psychologists, scientists, um, they mostly focus on abductions, as you said, and not really on the rest of the UFO phenomena. But so they, 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 there is an interest in psychology about the abduction phenomena, including, including what you're describing, which is the true suffering of those people, um, psychological pain they are in. Um, and then in that field, they advocate that there should be some psychotherapists specialized in anomalous phenomena, and those psychotherapists would be uh, presenting themselves as agnostic toward the phenomena. So they would not take position in favor or, in con or against the existence of the phenomena, but just to give psychological help to them. And in France, there is, um, there is one small group who does that, who is a group of trained psychologists. Uh, there is at least one PhD and one university teacher. And their group is just, we are psychologists trained and we have an interest in anomalous phenomena, and we won't we won't take position about what you're telling us. But if you are in suffer you're suffering, we we will try to help you. And I think that's for me that's the best approach. But unfortunately, it's very uncommon nowadays, so it's difficult to find those. I I, I have no knowledge of people like that in Germany. Maybe uh, th there is some parapsychology group in Germany. Maybe they there is. Uh, I don't speak German, so I, I don't. I'm not familiar. I know there are some psychology parapsychology group uh, that do in that they do interesting work in Germany. So maybe they could help you and see if if that kind of person exists. Um, no, that's what I would say. Yeah, thank you. I guess I, I think it's always really um, important, um, irrespective of what one may think about the phenomenon as such, to um, try to be empathetic and um, to offer support where um, where it's possible. So, yeah, I really appreciate your, your answer and your openness there. Um, well, this is a podcast about um, UFOs, and um, we love case studies. <laughs> is there is there um, is there a particular case study you could um, kind of um, 
give us to understand the um, psychosocial model a bit more in practice because uh, amongst my listeners um, there are also active um, UFO uh, researchers and um, who like you also have a critical position so it would be great if you could give them an insight into how you would approach a case if someone called you and said hey I just had a weird encounter please investigate well there's been some um very interesting uh, work done by not by me exactly but by the group i belong to and it's the saros operation the, the, they call it the saros operation um the saros is a if you don't know is a astronomical astronomical uh, cycle that brings back the moon 18 uh, years a few months and a few days exactly in the same position that it was before in the sky so it's not the same season uh for that you, you you would have to wait a long a long more a long time more but it's still the same position in the sky so the south operation was the idea it happens like uh, 20 years or maybe more than that but it's still kind of ongoing um the so the organization received lots of cases of course and some of them we look at them and we like yeah it kind of seemed to be a simple mistake with the moon. But at the beginning, they were not sure. So they were like, it could be the moon, but we're not sure. So what they would do is that they would write the date. And uh, 18 years later, they would recontact again the witness uh, and bring them back exactly at the same spot in, in, in the the countryside or wherever it was and show them and say to them, well, is that what you saw that night? And it works really well. <laughs> if you want to replicate that or the organizations, um, you can, is, is that you because, can... Is, sorry, can I just interrupt this? So it's that because of the yeah. lunar cycle. So every 18 years or whatever, the moon returns to the same spot and then you yeah, can yeah. kind of have a, have a possibility to falsify potential exactly. identification yeah, okay. yeah that's exactly that and the name of the cycle you it's called saros s-a-r-o-s that's the name in astronomy of that re uh, return of the moon at the same spot so you can find easily even in wikipedia should have a page about it if, about the astronomical cycle if you're interested <laughs> but anyway it's just going to tell you the moon comes back at the same position uh of course there can be some issues with that technique um for example in 18 years, the landscape can, can have changed. There can be a building now obscuring the view and so on. But in many, many cases, uh, the witness would be, we go there with one of, one of us and he would look and say, yeah, that's what I saw. It's really interesting with cases where there was a, they were in the car and then they located the moon of the UFO exactly in some, I turned on to the right and the UFO was to my left and, so you look on the map and then you do the same road with them in the car and you see the moon is exactly in the same position. So it's a very interesting way to prove that um, that people do mistake indeed, which seems amazing, but they do mistake the moon with UFO. Uh, from, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good scientific way to do it. So my organization have been doing that for years. Currently... Um, they they don't they don't tend to bring back uh, everybody to their location only if there's a case we're not sure it was really the moon or the, because they've been doing that for two decades so they're like that's good we, we've done it enough we're sure we're sure we we know 
et we reassure people do confuse the moon with UFOs and and we we know by reading what they say and looking in uh, you, you have some astronomy program you can you can easily see it was in the right direction that day um yeah and, and one article i i published recently in the Vincent, uh, I don't know if you've seen that book, uh, UFO, found uh, about the psychosocial model. Uh, Indeed, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was published by Vincent Juan Balester Olmos. In, I, I hope I'm not butchering his name, but that book is really, really interesting. If you're in, if what we are talking about uh, relates to uh, talks to you. That's really that same kind of approach. Um, I'm looking for the uh, where is the title exactly. What was it? The re- reliability of UFO witness testimony. So in that book, I have an article, which is a case study. So I'm only the second writer. So it's a proposed explanation by one of my colleagues called uh, Eric Mayo, which is one of the main, uh, a big investigator in France, about the Amarant case. Um, I, just a quick summary, uh, if, if you are interested by that case, everything is in that article, in that book, and that book is free on PDF on Academia. You don't even have to buy the book. Um, the Amarant case was a very famous case in France because it Currently, so the the French, the CNI, uh, the 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 JPAN, the, the 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 official organization to study the UFO, is well managed uh, by someone who try to stay neutral in the debate. So I think they do a really really good job, uh, and and their teams. Well, just to be, if you don't know, that group is only one person, one secretary, and the team are just voluntary. So lots of my friends are in the team, but they're just doing that in, on their free time. Don't imagine it's a huge laboratory with <laughs> lots of people. The laboratory is actually composed of one person, one secretary, and that's it. Um, but then he calls for help for from other investigators. But uh, before that, in, in the 90s, the... Um, that organization was led by someone who was really a big UFO uh, uh, extraterrestrial proponent. And we, most of us, we thought he wasn't critical enough or, yeah, he was not doing such a good job. And there was that case at that time that he pushed a lot in the media as being like really impressive case. And the case is one person uh, in a suburb area and uh, he see a UFO landing in his garden for half an hour, uh, and he gets close to the UFO, um, and then uh, the UFO takes off and, and leave. <laughs> so, of course, it sounds very impressive, but there are a few problems right away. As I said, there's only one witness, which is never good. Also, we are in suburban area with lots of people, and there are no other witness. So that's strange uh, for a UFO that landed for half an hour. So that that that's the basic of the case. Uh, yeah, there, there was some big discussion about, it's called the amaranth. The amaranth is a kind of plant. And there was a lot of discussion in because some people claim that the plants were 
affected by the presence of the UFO. The amaranth plant were affected biologically that could be verified scientifically. So we discuss about that in the case too, but the analysis is not so convincing. Uh, but that's the reason why that case was also big because people were like, uh, we, we have physical proof of biological alterations of the plant. So that must be, there was really a UFO there, uh, a, a spaceship there. Um, but then we, we address that. We show that the analysis is not as conclusive as people would claim it to be, but so we don't think it's it's true that the plants have been biologically altered. Then if we have that case, that's an interesting case. Obviously, we have one witness. So here you see, you, you could be tempted to say uh, he had an hallucination, right, for half an hour. <laughs> um, and there were some discussions uh, in that direction with some people. There were some indications that maybe could be that, but uh, my co-writer, so the main writer of the article, Eric Mayo, he he went for an, okay. Let's let's think it's not that it's not. It's like a method. That's a good example to explain how the psychosocial model. We, we a methodological principle is we should find something else than the hallucination or hoax. We, I mean, we we start with the. At first, we examine a case. We think the witness is sincere; he's not lying, and it's not a hallucination. What? What? How can we explain such a case? And uh, it, it was a few decades ago, so a long time ago. And actually, um, Mylar Balloon were not so popular at the time, uh, well known from the public. And uh, yeah, the, the explanation we explore in that article is that actually it was a Mylar Balloon who came and. Um, he came and landed on the plant, the, the, the famous plant. So that's why it was like floating in the air in front of him in the garden. And then the, the wind take, took it, uh, took it away in the sky. And, uh, yeah, we did, we did, we show that that explanation can account for every single details of what is, uh, said by the witness. So, uh, that would be a mistake of that kind. Yeah. So that would be um, kind of in the realm of individual uh, misinterpretations of um, of mon mundane phenomena. But then you also did some work on the Belgian um, UFO wave of um, late 80s, so 89, I think, at start. I went to about the mid-90s, 94. And here, I guess it's a bit different because it's one of those, as we like to say, ufology flaps um, over an extended period of time. Um, so what's your take on that? Um, how how did this kind of collective idea yeah. come that Belgium was visited by? UFOs come into practice. Yeah, usually, I'd say 89, 92, but even 92 is a little bit optimistic. Mm. <laughs> yeah, really, it was already dying, dying out at the time. So, yeah, sometimes you read dates that are really stretched away. So, it was not that long. Um, yeah, my take. So, so Philip Klaas, which is a very famous uh, UFO skeptical investigator, had a, a, a rule for the UFO wave. Huh? Um, um, that, that exp to explain uh, how 
how UFO wave happens. And um, for me, that that rule should be the the baseline explanation, and you should try to disprove that that's uh, that's what's going on. So um, so that rule is that as yeah, I'm paraphrasing because I have I don't have the quote by heart in my head, but he states that uh, when the journalist makes a population in a regional area believe that there are UFOs active at that point, lots of people will start looking more in the sky. And as they do, they will see prosaic objects that will they will interpret as UFO. And then they will send that to the journalist and the journalist will talk even more about it, which will prompt even more witness. And it's a cycle, like a... Um, psychological contagion i i don't like the word hysteria for that but psychological contagion but at point at some point it's going to peak because the journalist will lose interest and start saying oh we're done with that subject and they start not talking about it anymore and then the flap will go down that that's the basic curve of the class law for ufo wave and for me that's the um, the baseline which uh, people should should look at ufo wave so for the belgian ufo wave the um, August Mason we, and, and Co. were not interested in looking at it from a skeptical point of view at all. They were looking for proof of extraterrestrial visitation. So they were, as I said, just before the wave, they were going toward more skepticism. But when the wave started, they, they, they went back into their old position. Um, and um, but when you, we look at the UFO wave, people think it's impressive, but actually, there's a an argument I like to find. It's, it's called in, histo- in historical science the argument from from silence. The argument from silence is when you look at something, you should consider what kind of proof you should have if that happen event really happened, and if you don't have that proof, you should consider that it didn't really happen. And I think there is an argument from silence to have about the UFO wave. So if there was really an alien invasion of, of Belgium in eighty nine. We should have a lot of pictures. I know not everybody had cell phones and so on, but people had had a <laughs> photographic device at the time, even video cameras sometimes. Uh, and we should have uh, tangible proof and lots of stuff like that. Or we just have witnesses. We have mostly witnesses. Why? Because for the pictures, there were some pictures, but they were even by the suburbs quickly explained as mistake with airplanes and helicopters and so on. The only picture that was weird was the Petit Rochin picture, which is the very famous picture of the UFO wave. People like me and other physicists, we said uh, that that picture is fishy, you should be careful, but the the suburbs, they put it on the cover of their book and so on. And then in 2015, the the person who took the picture explained how he did it. So it was a hoax. He confessed the hoax, explained the technique. Um, and after that, there there were some weird UFO detec- uh, radar detection. Um, there was the with F, uh, with um, pilots from uh, jet pilot, uh, but they didn't see the UFO. And only there were two flying, and only one of them had something weird going on, and the other one didn't have anything. So obviously, the it, it sh- 
The fact that there was no visual contact by the pilot, you think it was, and one of the plane didn't detect anything. It's 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 kind of a glitch on the other one. Uh, so it was a uh, even even the suburbs in the second book that nobody read. August Mason conceded that was probably in detection of a inversion of temperature of the ground on the ground. So he he came back on that one. So when you look at it, all the physical evidence disappeared. Like there's there's no there's almost for something that's supposed to be huge, right? And that you should have lots of physical evidence. And actually, at the end of the day, you have nothing. So yes, and I think um, this is exactly what a um, social science perspective can um, do do for the subject is basically show the power of uh, cultural narratives, and um, it's um, you know I mean Bruno Latour uh, famously uh, analyzed how um, uh, laboratory results are. Always contingent upon um, what we, uh, what we're, in what kind of cultural climate we live. So, um, yeah, I think there's that. I think this type of thinking needs to um, make more inroads into ufology. Um, yeah. So, yeah, thanks. there's one argument I should address too, because it's the classic counter argument to what I said is that the beginning of the wave was abrupt and sudden, and the first day of the beginning of the wave, there were lots of sightings. So the first, the beginning in open was really, yeah, that day there were lots of 100 something. So of course there must have been something in the sky that day. So it's maybe there could be some militarists or people, helicopters and so on. But we can debate what was in the sky that day, but... The main observation was so. So the the arguments from the suburbs would be that was so quick and so intense. It cannot be sociological because people didn't communicate with each other. Right? You see what I mean? They they all saw something that night. So so the thing is, the main observation was from two cops. So we go back to that history of the narrative of uh, reliable, reliable observers. But, uh, I'm always like, okay, uh, if maybe you have a high opinion of cops, but <laughs> no, I'm, I'm gonna joke here. Okay, but I'm always like, why? Why cops would be so good at at recognizing stuff in the sky? I I don't know. It blows my mind. I I, I can I can understand the arguments for pilots, but for I'm, cops, I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm completely <laughs> with you there. I never got that <laughs> argument. Never got it. <laughs> but then the the there was a. Um, uh, something they saw in the sky moving and they chased the, the object and then the object disappeared from from view and then they arrive near a dam, a very famous dam that I've been there many times, it's called dam, La Gillette Dam and the objects, according to them, was over the dam and it was not moving anymore and they look at it for a long time, half an hour. And uh, that's, the, that's the seminal case. But the thing is, we think what happened is that they saw something in the first phase of the observation and then they lost sight and then over the dam, it was not the same thing anymore. So before it was probably a helicopter, we're, we're not sure, something moving, but then over the dam, it, the location in the sky is all, almost exactly at the Venus spot. So they saw Venus and Venus wasn't moving and they said it wasn't moving. So they were pretty accurate with what they say. Just their, their mistake was to conflate. They thought that was the same object on the two moments. So that's the famous case. 
But then what happened is that that case was published in the media. And then after that, the witness came, called the suburbs. So they read the article in the media and then they called the suburbs. <laughs> so saying that those witnesses are independent, it's not true anymore. You see, it's, even if the, if, if you, if you said, if you want the, the article in the journal told the people in open, by the way, didn't you see something strange in the sky that night? And some people, unsurprisingly, saw something in the sky that night. But saying that the start was abrupt because there was no communication between them, it's not true. It's tricky because, obviously, as soon as an, a journal article is published that says the, the, the cops saw that, did you see something similar? You see, it's, it's leading the witness in one direction. And then when they call the suburbs, they're already influenced by, by what... They, they read in the journal and they said, that day I saw that, but it's already completely contaminated by the article, if you will. So you basically, in, uh, according to this model, which I think is a very good one, you have basically at the start of it, a misidentification just gets picked up by the media and which then in turn starts this uh, self-reinforcing cycle of misidentifications. So that's... Um, yeah. Once it, once it started, the suburbs was really popular. The journalists, they were a group and there were two physicists in there. So they seemed very legitimate. So the journalists will ask them about it and they will publish article and the cycle spiraled, you know, until it's at some point the journalists, they're like, okay, that's good. And then it started to go down. And even the suburbs trying to re- to go again to the journalists didn't work anymore. They, and that's the UFO wave. That's why I think with what I say, said, I think, I'm not interested in the needle in the haystack because I don't think there is a needle in the haystack. But if you're interested in the needle in the haystack, don't, witnesses are, are not the way to go. You need tangible proof. You need, we need something physical. It's, I always take, said, if you look, for, if you claim that the Loch Ness Monster exists, you don't don't bring me witness who said witnesses who said they saw the long mess monster. You have to bring me in biology, in zoology. You, at this time, if you if you think there is a new species unknown, like a monster in the Loch Ness, you need to bring a specimen, either alive or dead. Something it, it, same thing for the Bigfoot. Witnesses are not enough in zoology to prove the existence of the Bigfoot. You need tangible proof. So uh, we are in the same situation for the UFO phenomena. Um, I think you just said something very important that if one is interested in that needle in the haystack, um, one basically needs to adopt a certain position or, you know, one or the very fact that one is interested in that needle is basically an ontological position. And um, I was just going to ask you about this to get a bit philosophical in the last few minutes of this episode. Um, do you think the approach most um, animalistic psychologists slash parapsychologists take these days and saying that, oh, or even sociologists, we're treating the UFO phenomenon as something that is worthwhile studying from within our own discipline to learn something, um, you know, epistemologically speaking about how certain aspects of of the human condition work? Um, Or do you think we should really study the UFO phenomenon to get at 
an objective truth behind the phenomenon. So I'm just wondering, because it's something um, ever since I've been engaged academically with this field, I think it's this kind of um, exercise that a lot of scientists do is they're interested in the phenomenon, but they're only studying it kind of in a removed way by saying, okay, we're not going to deal with the reality of it. You know, people may think whatever they want to think. We're interested in the effects and how it works. Yeah, that's something that's more about the sociology of science than anything else. I think for me, that was advice to me all the time when I was doing my PhD to look serious. <laughs> like if you're a serious researcher, you shouldn't address the ontological question. Just 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 stay away. Don't 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 take position, which is really unfortunate, I think. So yeah, for me, it's unfortunate. I think, yeah, I, I, I think I have talked about the ontological, my ontological position in this interview a lot. So you know what I think. But um, of course, there could be a needle in a haystack. And at some point, we can find some proof, but we're not there. So that's my position. We're, I'm waiting for something more tangible than we had so far. So I'm I'm not afraid of talking about the ontological position I have, but it was explicitly said to me by my teachers and stuff. You shouldn't do that. You should, you should pretend to be above the the crowd, like a neutral, like just like an eagle flying over the subject, and you just study. Yeah, you you, you don't you don't. It's like yeah, and they they say that for me not because of uh, methodological imperatives, but as a way to look serious when you submit a publication in a journal about that topic. If you if the journal doesn't also doesn't want to, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's my feeling about it. <laughs> like the journal doesn't want to take risks. So it's like a psychological journal don't want to publish studies about psi, you know, telepathy and stuff because it, it would look bad on the journal. So they're afraid if they start publishing article about the ontological aspect of the UFO phenomena, they will, it's a risk for them and it's easier for them to just avoid taking it. I don't know. Maybe you have another take on it, but that's mine. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar um, with the work of uh, Diana Pasolka. She's uh, become one of the uh, big, um, well, scientific faces of, um, you know, at least since 2017 and also with her um, recent book Encounters and before that um, American Cosmic, uh, where she basically takes the um, academic point of view uh, of a um, religious studies scholar. And um, whilst I really appreciate her work, um, I do find it difficult in the sense of that she's a very media-facing individual so she's very heavily invested in twitter or x and on various podcasts and so on but she always has this narrative of look i'm a religious studies academic um i study it kind of um you know in a removed neutral fashion but then she goes on these podcasts advocating you know or implying that oh she's more and more convinced of the you know that there truly is something anomalous there so um that's why i do really appreciate your um candidness about this because i find that position that she's adopting again nothing against her academic work but i do find it a bit a bit um disingenuous um because either you have a certain position or you don't <laughs> yeah. um, 
it's um in fact if um i don't think science is the right platform to um and to um uh, kind of hide hide that position so uh, that's uh, yeah. so I, i'm not particularly in favor of that we, we, yeah there's more to say about that then there's a case like that exactly like that in in france uh, actually before me probably was the most famous uh, human science person talking about ufo in the media uh, called pierre lagrange who is a sociologist and his approach of the ufo phenomena is exactly what you describe he says i'm neutral I'm a philosopher of science and I'm, I'm look, I'm going to look neutrally at, at the debate about the UFO phenomena between the proponent and the skeptic. And basically his PhD is about, uh, skeptics are pseudoscientific and proponents are not <laughs> in a way. But what I had, uh, yeah, there's lots of to say about that, that claim to neutrality. Um, um, it's the thing is, uh, some of my friends who are have been in ufology for a long time in France, they knew him when he was a teenager and he was already a very, very fervent believer in extraterrestrial hypothesis before starting sociology. So we, we all know. <laughs> then as a sociologist, how, okay, you're, you're trying to be neutral. I mean, it, okay, in a publication, I can do a publication saying in that paper, I will take that position that I'm neutral but for real, you're not neutral. But in that paper, I will I will pretend it's like a make believe uh, paradigmatic framework. I will I will take that assume that position of neutrality. Beyond, but then in the media, he goes in the media and he's like, "I'm neutral." But then I think that skeptics are dead with wrong. <laughs> so I'm like, what, "What kind of neutrality is that?" Right? <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it, it comes, he, he's been deeply inspired by Bruno Latour, who you mentioned before. And, and Bruno Latour, in some of his writing, advocate that neutrality in, in a direction I understand fully uh, about history of science. So you look, you say you will look at the history of the debate between um, uh, two physicist camps, for example, heliocentrism and geocentrism. And obviously, you know which camp won. <laughs> we, we know. You, you look at the controversy, but we know today who was right at the time. But as a sociologist, you will say, I'm going to look at that literature and I will assume a position when I pretend I don't know who won. I will look at it and I'm, I'm going to be neutral. Okay. For historical work, it makes perfect sense to me. It's very interesting to say, I'm going to look at that literature and pretend I don't know who won that that controversy, that uh, debate. Um, but doing that with a current controversy or current debate, I think is really tricky. And I'm kind of, yeah, I'm like you. I'm like, <laughs> pretend to be neutral for something that is ongoing now uh, okay, as I said, if, if if you do one article and you say, in this article, I will do that, but pretend to do that all the time, or, uh, I- including when you appear on podcast and you clearly take position at that point, I think it's really problematic. Exactly. it's. Uh, I think it's just a bit confusing and leaves people a bit aghast as to what you're actually on about. Um, by way of concluding this, um, I would like to ask you what it would take 
to convince you that there is an objective reality that is anomalous within the current within our current understanding of physics and the world what it would take you to to, to convince you that, that that is the case and perhaps um just few thoughts on my end about this so as you i am also i have a, i do have a critical position however i do also think there that there is and that's perhaps where we differ uh, an objective anomalous um aspect to what we call ufo um the ufo phenomenon or uap and i think it's basically if you look at the data set we have different components so today we talked a lot about the um subjective experience part of it so eyewitness testimony which i said earlier probably makes up 95 percent of um of the data set we have but i think then there are also three other important pillars in ufology and the ufological data set that we should consider one of these is machine measured data the second is authoritative official statements so let's say you know, an ex-intelligence officer comes forward, says something, or we have a FOIA request, freedom of information request, when we see mm -hmm. an official document that corroborates something or alludes to something. And the final pillar are kind of cultural traditions, narratives. These are, so the last aspect, grantedly, is perhaps goes more into the direction we've been talking about, where you could also treated separately as kind of a cultural tradition of reporting these issues. So if we if this broad classification, so subjective experience, machine measured data, authoritative official statements and cultural narratives, if that basically is kind of the way we can compartmentalize data, mm -hmm. where do you think we we would get some insights into hey this is truly anomalous because from what i gather today the kind of eyewitness testimony and i'm completely with you there is highly dubious yeah but for me yeah it's a very difficult question but first off i would say uh if there was something i'm, I'm completely open to the idea that could be something anomalous as ball lightning and stuff like that in france there is a working with that french organization official there's a Bull experts uh, studying those, and I'm not a bull lightning expert or lightning. He's a lightning expert, and I don't. I'm not expert at all in that field, and I find what he does interesting. Some people criticize, but that's fair anyway. But I really have no issue with that. Saying some sightings could be done because of some kind of weird bull lightning that we don't know yet, or some some stuff like that so there could be some needle of that style <laughs> according to me easily um for the rest uh cultural narratives uh yeah I'm, I'm 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 cultural narratives i'm fairly convinced that can be explained completely sociologically i mean ufo knows are the continuation of fairy stories from before i don't believe in fairies either but they're just the continuation Classically, uh, before there were trolls, and now there are Bigfoots. Um, alien abductions are very similar to fairy stories before that just show the psychology of humans at work is consistent through time. Uh, for me, there's nothing surprising. Just the name have changed or the interpretation. We don't believe that there are fairies in the wood anymore, but culturally we believe that they're aliens. So that's the interpretation we currently use for talking about it. So that no, 
the um, uh, disclosure i'm i'm really i'm i'm really not into disclosure i think it's really the completely wrong approach to things i don't believe the us government has any special knowledge about the ufo phenomena i think i think squarely the ufo phenomena is a scientific question if an answer comes at some point it's from the scientific community i couldn't care less about what some american soldier knows about it or think he knows about it or believe he knows about it in America. I'm a little bit harsh probably, but uh, really any, the idea of a, of a global conspiracy for hiding the truth sounds just silly to me. I mean, why, why the American, there's no reason China would hide, we would play along the Americans to hide. And if there's lots of UFO in the sky all the time, the Chinese should have had capture one by now. So all that stuff is, is just, be groundless for me. So uh, it's just fascinating sociologically that there, there's that belief in disclosure that is very similar to the belief in end times. Next year it will come or at some point the, um, the, the government will tell us the truth. When, when for me, whatever says the government, the US government is losing anywhere, he will never second something that will make happy the UFO proponents. And um yeah, so so no, not that. So yeah, for me it would be, uh, of course, measurements by machines that are way more objective than witness. So it will come from that. So yeah, clearly, I think okay. uh, the city and the NASA and other they they have some way to detect stuff. So that that would be clearly the the way to go for me. And just just quickly for me. Finally, as I said, ultimately, I think, yeah, just, I always say, bring me what, uh, there should be a UFO landing in front of, of, of the European Parliament, or there should be, we should have physical evidence, obviously alien technology, or obviously alien biology we can examine. That would convince me. Um, and so, last, and then I'd let you finish. I think epistemologically, the, the UFO, ufology is flooded because looking for anomalies is a very terrible way to do science. And, you know, with the Loch Ness Monster, the, the geographic area is, is limited. So at some point, we are sure there's no Loch Ness Monster. It's a little bit more difficult with Bigfoot, but still, at some point, it's clear there's no Bigfoot. But with UFO, we will never, there will always be the possibility that something is there. So I, I think a science based on anomaly uh, research is a very problematic methodological approach. And I prefer parapsychology because they can do laboratory work. You can do an experiment that can be replicated or not. But ufology has lots of bad points, like the geography is too vast. It's not like a lake or the Amer American continent or American country, US. It's too, too broad, space is too broad. And you cannot bring it to the laboratory when you can replicate. So as a science, ufology is really problematic. So yeah, I'm, I'm not expecting much. Well, here you go. Yeah, no, th thanks thanks a lot for your uh, candidness and transparency here. So basically the reason I listed these different evidential categories, you know, from subjective experience of machine learning to um, authoritative official statements is because what we're trying to do here, and I really appreciate it, is having, you know, a mutual dialogue and uh, understanding. I think 
we can agree on. So this is what I mean. When we have these different categories, we can see, we can say, okay, we agree on that probably machine-based data is the way forward whether from and you know this and then there are also areas where we differ so for me for instance authoritative official statements like the david grush thing that's unfolding in the states at the moment for me that is also highly interesting and part of the puzzle so i give a different weight to that evidential category but um yeah so that's why why i brought up these different categories because i think we're all interested in um, whatever the phenomenon is, but we perhaps um, approach these different categories differently and give different weight to them. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank, thanks a lot. Uh, it was really um, very informative for me, and I will aim to bring on um, more. I don't know, even know if the word skeptic is the right one, but more serious uh, researchers, not to say that the people I've had on so far weren't um, serious researchers, but also, let's say, researchers with a different um, academic position on this phenomenon. Because I believe that the truth, if what's a highly problematical word, is probably somewhere in the cracks in between of what this phenomenon really is. Um, by way of conclusion, um, where can people find out more about your work and your publications? Oh, the easiest is Academia. I have an Academia page, so they can look for my name, Jean-Michel Abrassard, and they will have most of my uh, publications there. Also, I, just to mention, we one of the skeptic organization in Brussels, we started a peer-reviewed journal to talk about anomalous phenomena and also critical thinking. And I already published in an article in French there. But one, if some of these listeners can write in French in a proficient manner, don't hesitate to submit an article. I'm, I'm looking forward to more articles in, in about the UFO phenomena. Also, it's a completely peer-reviewed journal. Uh, and we're open from any disciplines. If you talk about UFO from an historical point of view, from a folkloristic point of view, from a psychology, parapsychology, whatever, we're open to it. And um, yeah, and also, yeah, for example, we, we received an article about the Ariel Zimbabwe case recently. So it's currently peer reviewed. And that one will be in French and in English on our website. So anyway, oh, just... Uh, very interesting. Looking forward to, to reading that one. It's a case I've been um, always intrigued by. Very interesting. Cool. And um, what's, what's next for you? Um, are you working on anything um, particular at the moment? Um, uh, to be honest, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really working on that scientific journal that we launched uh, like a year and a half ago. Uh, that's something I wanted to do for a long time, having a, a peer review scientific journal where people could publish articles on those topics. Uh, like we had about the Beast of Gévaudan also, which is uh, a cryptid. So I'm really happy it's, it's starting to pick up, but it's lots of work on, on we are a team, but <laughs> it's, I'm focusing on that right now. Just uh, reading the article, sending to the peer review. It's uh, it's it's already a lot of work. Well, perfect. Thanks thanks for taking the time on a Saturday morning to uh, chat with me about um, critical positions towards ufology. It's really appreciated. <laughs> cool. Anyway, well, thank, thanks a lot, and um, hopefully I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Bye bye. Thank yeah. you. Bye bye.